right, you're listening to the Steve Schramm Show. Pleasure to be here again with you today. Hope you are having a good day. Hope you had a good week this past week. If you uh, took our survey, thank you so much. Just want to extend that thank you to you for uh, having taken that and giving us some direction for the new year. We're super excited about where it looks like that's going to be going. And uh, we're going to be creating some really, really good stuff for you this year as a result. Hey, don't forget, if you remember from last week, we talked a little bit about a new podcast community that we set up. We'll put the link in the show notes for that. I want you to go in there, uh, join us, and uh, you know, just uh, interact with us. Ask questions about the topics we talk about. And uh, I can't wait to hear from you uh, a little more in there. Uh, and uh, that will open up a little bit of the dialogue so that we can talk together about important issues that matter. Thank you again for joining us this week. All right, we're going to dive right in this morning. We're talking about a young age creationist explanation for the cosmic microwave background radiation. Okay, now that is an absolute mouthful. Uh, I realize that, and hopefully you don't judge me for the long title, but it's uh, I've mulled over the title for a while, and that's honestly about the best I could get it and still get across what I really wanted to. We're going to be talking about a paper today that Danny Faulkner submitted to the um, Answers Research Journal, in 2016. And this is kind of continuing along the same subject matter as the past couple weeks. We've been talking a little bit about astronomy and cosmology. I've been reading a little more about uh, about astronomy and cosmology from a creationist perspective. And this has, if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me talk about this, but this has been kind of an area that, that I'm a little weak in. Uh, I'm not the astrophysicist. Uh, I am not the greatest with some of these concepts, but I'm working on learning more about them. And so kind of want to bring you along on that journey with me. And as we do that, we want to look at some biblical information and some scientific information and kind of find out how things fit together. And this is one of the reasons why I really appreciate the work of Dr. Danny Faulkner. I've talked about him a few times, and if you know much about me, as a matter of practice, I tend not to say, oh, well, you know, I I specifically follow the work of of this creationist organization or or this organization or whatever. Um, I think that might be painting with a little too broad of a brush. I prefer to get my information from individual researchers who I have found through my studies are reliable. A lot of times this is kind of like word of mouth. Uh, let me just paint a parallel for you. When you're getting ready to go see a movie, one of the things you do is ask your friends if they've seen the movie. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe one of your friends has gone to see a movie and they come to you and they say, look, you have got to see this movie or you have got to go to this business and try their hamburger. Whatever it is, it's word of mouth. Uh, Word of mouth marketing is very popular, very, very popular form of marketing, a form of marketing that actually most businesses could not live without. 
And of course, the purpose of today's podcast is not to talk about marketing. But the point I want to bring out to you is that I've found that word of mouth can be a great way to learn about new researchers you should follow, whose work you should follow. And for what it's worth, I've put together a little a little scale that probably wouldn't work for anybody else, but it works for me as to how I can determine how reliable a source is. And Dr. Danny Faulkner is one of the most reliable, I think, from a creationist astronomy perspective. He's very, very fair-minded and approaches the topics that he covers with sensitivity. And, of course, he's pretty smart, too. So he's one of those guys who, when he speaks, I listen. When he comments on other creationist models, when he puts a model forward of his own, whatever the case may be, I listen. He seems to be a fair-minded voice. And so this is one of the things that he wrote. I'm not presenting this to you today as though it's the gospel truth. Uh, Certainly not. However, I do think it's a very, very interesting suggestion that he has made. And this might become clear to you as we go on. But what we're going to talk about today, in a sense, has been sprinkled into other creationist cosmologies over the years, but never really understood on its own. And I think it's a concept that stands strongly on its own because it's firmly rooted in Scripture. We're going to be looking at some very uh, detailed exegesis of some important concepts in Genesis 1 that, quite frankly, may rub up against some preconceived ideas that you have about what's going on there. And I don't want to give away too much before we dive right in, because everything will become clear as it goes along. But what's interesting is, as we talk about this, if the arguments that are offered go through, the end result is actually a potential creationist explanation for the cosmic microwave background radiation. And if you know anything about the creation debate at all, the origins debate, you know that the... CMB, Cosmic Microwave Background, is one of the best evidences, or at least it's hailed as one of the best evidences for the success of the Big Bang Theory. So, if what we're looking at today gives us a possible explanation for that that would allow for incorporation into other creationist cosmologies that I think it's really important and really interesting. So this was partially, this study, reading it today, is partially a result of a new Bible study I'm going through, which I say that like it's a program, it's really not, it's just a thematic way to read through the Bible. I plan on talking about that at some point in the near future. But I'm basically just going through the Bible in a way where a lot of themes are put together, so it covers the whole Bible. It's meant to be done in a year, but I'm extending it out uh, longer than a year because I'm taking my time, going pretty slow. So I've been back in Genesis 1 again and looking at some things. And then, of course, the study we did last week and the week before here on the podcast have been relevant to this subject. And so I found this on the Answers Research Journal a while ago, and I revisited it this past week, and I think it might be very interesting for you. 
So again, it was written by Dr. Danny Faulkner, and I want to just go ahead and dive right in. I'm going to first of all read the abstract for you like I usually do and give you some introductory thoughts, and we'll just move right on from there. Here's the abstract. Quote, I propose that Genesis 1-1 represents an example of introductory encapsulation, providing a summary of all the events of the creation week. The creative acts described in the account of day 2, Genesis 1, 6-8, thus refer to the astronomical heaven. This establishes a foundation for building a biblical model of astronomy. This approach also makes three bold statements about the universe. As an added benefit, it may provide a simple explanation for the CMB, Cosmic Microwave Background. Close quote. There is a lot going on in this paper, but Dr. Faulkner wrote it really well, so I think it should be hopefully pretty clear to you. We're going to discuss three things primarily. First of all, the most likely meaning of Genesis 1-1 and the interpretive advantages that such a view of Genesis 1-1 would provide. Then we're going to talk about the biblical definition of what is usually translated as the firmament. Some translations use the word expanse, but in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew rakia. And you'll have to forgive me. I'm probably not going to strain to say that accurately because I'm going to be saying it a lot throughout this episode. So if you'll forgive me uh, on that point, I'm probably just going to say rakia, and you'll know what I mean. So the rakia, uh, it's I'm not saying it accurate to how the Hebrews would have said it, but um, I think for reasons which you might sympathize with me on, we'll just go with that. And then finally, three reasons, or three results rather, from this view, which may, on their own, provide a simple explanation for the CMB. So it's going to be jam-packed. I'm really excited to bring this to you today. Before we dive right into the introduction, though, I wanted to tell you about today's free handout. The lesson handout is three reasons creationists and everyone else should reject the Big Bang Theory. Three reasons creationists and everyone else should reject the Big Bang Theory. You know that I like to make things practical. I like to keep things uh, on the bottom shelf so that when you're engaging in conversations with people and pe- people ask you for your convictions, uh, you can at least have, you can show, you can demonstrate that you've done your research, you've done your study, even if you don't know everything. You don't have to be an astrophysicist to look at the research that others have done and come to a conclusion about whether you find it convincing. And this is one way that I am trying to help you make things a little bit more practical in your conversations. So the handout for this lesson, and you'll see why it's related as we go on, but it is definitely related to the subject matter that we're talking about today. So I want you to go download that three reasons creationists and everyone else should reject the Big Bang Theory. And in order to get that, you're just going to need to go to steveshram.com slash 074 download. steveshram.com slash 074 download. And 
you will be able to download that. Or, of course, you can just enter your information in the show notes and you can get it from there. So let's begin really diving into this. Now, the Hebrew word for heavens, let's go ahead and get this out of the way, is I'm just going to say it in a commonplace way, if you'll allow me to do that, would be Shemayim. Shemayim, okay? It appears 421 times in the Old Testament, the first of which is in Genesis 1. Remember, this is the Hebrew word for heavens. Now, this is a plural word that's not necessarily important to this discussion, other than to say that if it's translated heavens or heavens, it's pretty much usually the same word there being used, Shemayim. We make a distinction there in English that isn't really made in the Hebrew. Okay, so it refers to things above us. Things above us. Let's just be very, very general. Remember, we want to try to understand things as the Hebrews would have understood things. We uh, do not expect that the Hebrews would have had any idea of a concept that we do of outer space. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't make distinctions. That's what we're getting ready to talk about. But generally speaking, the word heavens, the word Shemayim, refers to things above us. So Dr. Faulkner gives three possible reference to this. uh, Reference, R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, reference. Okay, now, in order to make this clear, he's going to use an analogy of three heavens. So he's going to talk about the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. But I want to make clear, before we dive into that, that he is not saying that the Old Testament makes a distinction between the three heavens. There was a uh, three heavens kind of cosmology that was dominant in Greece and Rome and the surrounding areas at around the time that the New Testament was written and being translated. And so actually in one place you have the Apostle Paul referring to something as the three heavens. Now I think one could very, very easily argue that it's not talking about the same thing that the Greek pagans would have understood And we'll talk about that in a later episode, I'm sure. But just know that Dr. Faulkner is going to use, for convenience sake, a reference to the three heavens, and we're getting ready to explain that. But this is not a clear-cut biblical distinction in that the Bible talks about them in this way. Okay? So let me give you what he's got here. The first heaven would be the near distance above us the near distance above us. So today, we would call this the atmosphere. The atmosphere. Okay, now the atmosphere was not a concept to the ancient people. So the ancient Hebrews would not have recognized that as the atmosphere. It's just simply the things that are nearest to us. Clouds, birds, precipitation. These are the kind of phenomena that are referenced in the Bible that could be associated with this first heaven. So in Psalm 104, 12, you've got the birds of heaven. In Isaiah 55, 10, you've got rain and snow. So those are some examples. 
The second would be the astronomical realm, which we today would call space. And that seems evident because in uh, Psalm 115.3, we find that, uh, or excuse me, in Genesis 22.17, we find that the stars are in heaven. The stars are in heaven. So this would be what we know today as the astronomical realm, uh, space. The third heaven is the abode of God. The abode of God. Psalm 115.3 tells us that God is in heaven. And it seems clear to me that it would have been clear to the Hebrews that the abode of God is not the same place where the birds are. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but because of distances and things like that. And the ancient people were not stupid, by the way. They didn't have the equipment that we have to do observation like we have today. But the ancients were actually very interested in astronomy. Even before the time of Christ, we have folks doing calculations that led to the conclusion of a round earth. So let's not get bogged down with that. But let's keep it in, in view that the ancients did not have the knowledge and the technology that we have today, but they weren't stupid. They realized that the abode of God is not the same place that the birds fly, and that neither of those are the same place where the sun and the moon were. Those were still three separate things, even though sometimes in Scripture the distinctions are are blurred because they're referred to as the same using the same word. Okay, so I already mentioned this important cautionary note that the enumeration of these heavens is not taught in Scripture. So this, on this point, it's merely phenomena- phenomenological. So in other words, it's merely a matter of observation, and we just talked about that. The birds are not the abode of God. So he fleshes that out a little bit, makes mention that that there is an obvious parallax effect going on there. So in other words, by that he means one's location determines what they observe. Uh, A cloud or a bird experienced uh, in one location may not necessarily be experienced in another location. Uh, On the other hand, moving small distances over the earth would not greatly change the way that one were to observe the, you know, would observe the moon or the sun. So it would be, it would have been obvious to the ancients that these are two different things going on here. So there is a distinction there. However, the distinction is not between atmosphere and outer space. The Hebrews didn't make that distinction. We make that distinction, but they did not. So because of that, it's blurred a little bit sometimes in the Old Testament. And again, we talked about that. I just kind of wanted to give you his reasoning. Okay, the next thing we want to notice by way of introduction is that the Shemayim, remember this is the word for heavens or heaven, Shemayim occurs again in Genesis 1, 6 through 8. Genesis 1, 6 through 8. So at, at this time, God creates the firmament, which again we mentioned is the rakia. Now, he calls it, interestingly, in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, in verse 8 I believe he calls it, the Shemayim. The verse says, And God called the firmament 
heaven. So this is very interesting. There's a question that's raised here. I don't know if you've picked up on it. But here's the question. Were the heavens created on day one or day two? Were the heavens created on day one when God created the heavens and the earth? Or were they created on day two when God created the Rakia and called it the Shemayim? In other words, when God created the firmament and called it heaven. When was heaven created? Our understanding here of Genesis 1-1, as well as the nature of this rakia, this firmament, are going to contribute, I would say, pretty greatly to the answer of that question, uh, especially since over half of the occurrences in the Hebrew Bible are found within the creation narrative of the word rakia. So this is very, very interesting. Now, there have been some suggestions by many different creationists over the years. Dr. Henry Morris in 1970 and again in 1976 argued for a vapor canopy based on the idea that the rakia was the Earth's atmosphere. Though it, it seems apparent, according to uh, according to Faulkner, that he did allow for more astronomical interpretations in some given passages. Seems like he really wanted to say, though, that the firmament was the atmosphere, and he argued for that vapor canopy. Johnson, in 1987, argued that the rakia meant space, as in what we would understand to be outer space, in all contexts. Russ Humphreys, in 1994, developed the idea that the rakia was interstellar space, arguing against the atmospheric view. And I should have mentioned that Johnson's view, space in all contexts, meaning the atmosphere, space, the whole, the whole nine yards. But on Humphrey's view, it was just interstellar space, and it was not an atmospheric view. Hartnett, in 2007, went kind of to the middle ground and proposed that uh, it actually extended to the outer regions of our solar system, so that the rakia extended all the way to the outer regions of our solar system, and he would have argued that uh, for some appearance of water in deep space and kind of wanted to associate the waters above with whatever was going on out there past our solar system. Walt Brown, in 2008, argues very differently from everybody else that the rakia is the Earth's surface. I, to say I'm unconvinced by that is uh, putting it lightly. So, each of these suggestions, in some way, is necessary in order to make their individual ideas about cosmology work. Now, it's not really clear in either case whether the model of the Rakia was a result of the cosmology or whether the cosmology was dependent upon the understanding of the Rakia. But either way, uh, there was a close relation there. But he makes a very poignant point, uh, Faulkner does here in this paper. He says this, unfortunately, many of the teachings on the Rakia in the creation literature appear to have been developed after little interaction with the Hebrew scholarship. Now, that's a very 
sad statement. We need to understand that there are a lot of people who are disciplined in this area, who have studied for a long time in this area, and who even who hold views about creation similar to us. And I think it would be wise to lean on their wisdom, even if there are those who don't agree with this. We need to lean on their wisdom and see what they have to say about this. That way we need to make sure that we are in the right What's interesting here is just a little bit of good exegesis could really have solved this problem a long time ago. And we're going to find out more about that here in a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's talk just a little bit about ancient Greece. We're not going to take forever here, but it's something that he mentions in the paper that I think is an interesting point. Many English translations today, including my preferred translation, which is the King James, is um, they use the word firmament here. So a side issue to this might have a little bit to do with Greek thought. Now, when the trans, uh, when the uh, Septuagint was translated, the Greek cosmology featured a hard, transparent sphere. The, the sky is what they understood that to be on which the stars were affixed. And they called this the celestial sphere, the celestial sphere. So the Septuagint renders the rakia as the Greek word stereoma, stereoma, which Faulkner tends to think was likely an attempt to interpret scripture based on the cosmological understanding of the day. I'm not saying he's right necessarily, but this is the view that he advances. So I'm just giving you the paper as he gives it to us, okay? So, Dr. Faulkner believes that the uh, word that the Septuagint uses, the stereoma, was a reflection of that cosmology. When they saw the word rakia, the word rakia doesn't necessarily denote any kind of hard substance. In fact, it means something more like to be spread out or to be beat out or to be meted out. It doesn't necessarily denote a hard substance, but the ancient Greeks thought that it did. So when the Vulgate was translated in Alexandria, the Latin firmamentum firmamentum was chosen. By the way, Alexandria was the center of Greek thought. So the word firmament that we have in many modern English translations today is a transliteration of that word. So taken that way, it might denote something hard. So that might cause some people some confusion. I want to give you, again, uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner's thoughts on this. Quote, Given the reality of the way the Rakia has been translated, medieval Christian and rabbinical scholars' opinions on the subject may be suspect. At the very least, they were products of the times in which they lived. Furthermore, they, like other translators, may have felt compelled to conform to the cosmology of their times. Truly ancient, that is, pre-Greek influence, Hebrew sources outside of the Old Testament are exceptionally rare and do not make mention of the word rakia. Furthermore, the sparse use of the word rakia elsewhere in the Old Testament is of little help. Close quote. So, 
The point that he wants to just simply make there is that some people may have taken this word firmament and crafted cosmologies based on that word that may or may not be correct. So let's continue on to find out if we can look at this word and find out more about it. We're going to revisit that, though, because first we have to jump back to Genesis 1.1. We have to find out what is the meaning of that. Okay, now the question is, was it the moment of creation, the initial moment of creation? Now, this has been the dominant view among recent creationists. In fact, among many creationists, even old earth creationists, a lot of times take Genesis 1-1 to be the initial creative event. I believe that old earth creationists would want to actually maybe take that a little further and tie it right to the Big Bang. Now, Whitcomb and Morris, in recent creationist circles, I think were the first to really, really advance this view. And of course, they had pretty heavy influence, and so it's no wonder to me, or to the author of the paper, that this view has been dominant. But outside of the creationist literature, actually the view is much less dominant. It's much less dominant. The, the idea that Genesis 1-1 describes the initial creation event. Now, I found this very interesting because I would say that I, I probably held that view too, but by default. Now, I understood some of the grammatical things about it that we're getting ready to be talking about, but I never thought of it in the terms that it's going to be presented here before you. So here's what I mean. Dr. Faulkner argues in this paper by pointing to a concept that uh, Boyd has termed, and Boyd, by the way, is a Hebrew scholar, an introductory encapsulation. An introductory encapsulation. Here's how he defines it. A verb representing an eventuality that subsumes a series. Let me read that again. A verb representing an eventuality that subsumes a series. So here is an example given in the paper. It was also given by Boyd. Quote, Carl had a great morning. That's the introductory encapsulation. His wife made the family bacon and eggs. There was little traffic driving into the office. His secretary had a pot of coffee waiting for him. His cranky client canceled his appointment. Close quote. So as you can see here, the introductory encapsulation is followed by four sentences of elaboration. Now, Dr. Boyd defines the elaboration as the coherence relation in which eventualities depicted by a group of verbs take place in the same time interval as that of the eventuality represented by the verb that precedes the group. Let me read that again. It's quite a technical definition, but you know, you have to be precise with these things to make sure you're not misunderstood. Let me give it to you one more time. The elaboration, which follows the introductory encapsulation, is the coherence relation in which eventualities depicted by a group of verbs take place in the same time interval as that of the eventuality represented by the verb that precedes the group. 
if you want to read it, you can. Genesis 37, 5 through 7 provides an example of this. The text states that Joseph dreamed a dream. Then the text records his elaboration to his brother, uh, brothers, rather, featuring the content of the dream. Okay, so hopefully, I know those definitions were a little technical, but hopefully the examples that I've given have shown you that it's quite easy to understand what the concept is. Basically, you've got a summary statement at the beginning, and there is an elaboration that follows that is not separated in time from that beginning necessarily. Okay, so Dr. Faulkner proposes this to be the case with Genesis 1, and uh, he gives this uh, three reasons for, for thinking that. First of all, Genesis 1-1 is a merism. It's a merism. So in Hebrew, a well, really in any language, a merism can be understood as a two... I didn't write down a definition for this, so I'm thinking of it off the top of my head, so pardon my, my pause there. But basically, it's when two contrasting parts are used together to define or to represent a whole. So when two contrasting parts are used together to represent the whole. So just to give you the example pertinent to our discussion, there was no word in Hebrew for universe. So instead of saying the universe... The Hebrews simply said heaven and earth, the heavens and the earth. So this encompasses all of creation. Now something important, not necessarily to this discussion here, but just to keep it in the back of your mind, is one of the key things that separates Israel from all of the other cultures that surrounded them is that they had a worldview of transcendence. So they saw the heavens and the earth as one thing, but it was the created thing. The Hebrew writers of the Bible were radically monotheistic. Radically monotheistic. There is no room at all for the pantheon to make its way into the Bible. There is not the slightest hint of this polytheistic idea going on. So be aware of that. They had a worldview of transcendence. God is radically other than the world. So they understood that the heavens and the earth were everything around them, but they were other than God. God was separate from them. Now, the surrounding cultures, like like all of the surrounding cultures, were bathed in a worldview of what John Oswald calls continuity. And on the continuity view, the gods not only are a part of the world, but they are a lot of times manifestations of the world. And in many cases... The, the gods are portrayed as in the image of humans. In other words, they are subject to the same moral 
qualms and the ethical issues and they they can only be associated with physical phenomena. So that's a little separate point uh, related to some other things I've been studying. But so anyway, I got a little off track there, but let's get back on. So Hebrews, or excuse me, so the Hebrews understood Genesis 1-1 to be a merism. We understand that is a merism. They had no word for universe. So that is what they meant to convey with the concept. Okay, the second is that 1 1 and Genesis 2 1 through 3 together seem to form an inclusio? An inclusio. And this is kind of another uh, literary device in which we kind of see the, the two bookends of a particular chapter. We see the, I don't want to say chapter because that might get a little confusing because. There's obviously a chapter marker in between these in, in the canon, but the closing idea, there's an opening to the idea and then a closing to the idea, and this is called an inclusio. So basically, you've got Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning God creates the heaven and the earth, and then in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we see God finishing his work of creation, making the earth and the heavens. And if you look at the wording there, go read your Bible, look at the wording, you will see what is going on there and why that might be evident. Okay, the third thing is that the grammatical relationship between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 suggests that we might have this encapsulation going on. Basically, Genesis 1-2 doesn't appear to follow sequentially in the text. Rather, it describes the state of things near the beginning of the process, which were summarized in verse 1. And we won't go into the argument here. It's a little more sophisticated based on the languages, but the idea is that it kind of, in a way, acts as a parenthesis. It, it's describing the state of things at that beginning point. It's not necessarily arguing for a a sequential move between verses 1 and 2. There's literally no time there. Okay, so next, Faulkner notes a very impressive list of Hebrew and or Old Testament scholars who hold this view that he's laid out, this introductory capsulation view, and who would agree that, yes, we have a merism, yes, we have an inclusio, and yes, we have a special relationship between verses 1 and 2 that seem to suggest that there is no uh, time uh, in between them. So, he recognizes and addresses a couple of hesitations that maybe you have to what you just heard. So, he tries to address them here. Uh, He says, first, that Genesis 1-1 is so important to creation that uh, folks often have a hard time accepting other possibilities. And, you know, I found this to be true. I mean, not necessarily with Genesis 1-1, although certainly with Genesis 1-1, you know, people sometimes have a hard time letting go of their preconceived notions, even if there's no immediate damage to be done. And speaking of damage to be done, he then recognizes that many will feel that this opens the door to add millions of years into the Bible. But he provides some points to argue against that, and I've kind of summarized them. Let me give them to you here. Okay, 
first of all, Exodus 20, 6 through 11, precludes this, right? Because in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and all that in them, you know, the sea and all that in them is, and he rested on the seventh day. Okay, so we have this particular pattern for a work week that is based on God's creative work week in Exodus 26 through 11. And even our strongest critics say that this is one of the best proof texts we can offer to show that this is a regular week like we experience today and like the Hebrews had for their work week. Now, there are some who want to say that it doesn't necessarily denote this. In other words, that it might just be the pattern that's in view there. But that doesn't seem the most parsimonious explanation to me. It seems to me like if we just take it for what it seems to say pretty clearly, that it's not the pattern that's in view in that particular portion of scripture. Now later in Exodus it talks about the jubilee years and you know working for 6 years resting on the 7th year etc. And so th- that is obviously based on the pattern, but it seems to me that that only works if the week is based on something founded in reality. And I think that's what we find. So Exodus 26 to 11 seems to argue against the view that accepting Genesis 1:1 as an introductory encapsulation would allow us to add millions of years into the Bible. Okay, and then the second thing about that is that you can't just divorce the introductory encapsulation from the details of the story. So no one would suggest this in the examples mentioned above. So in other words, like in the Joseph example, you know, nobody nobody would suggest that there was this huge amount of time between Joseph dreaming the dream and Joseph elaborating to his brothers, or not Joseph dreaming the dream, but the statement, Joseph dreamed a dream, that statement, and then the actions after that. Similar with the example with uh, Carl. Carl had a good morning, and then somebody described the morning. Nobody would suggest adding millions of years of time into those scenarios, okay? So it's the same thing here. So, according to Faulkner, then, quote, to suggest that introductory encapsulation permits for the insertion of great time is to misunderstand introductory encapsulation and elaboration, close quote. So, the person who would say that that's possible doesn't really even understand what it's saying. So, there, are, these fears should hopefully be absolved for now, uh, if, if, if you happen to have some reservations about this. So that was the meaning of Genesis 1-1. So now we want to talk about one more thing. What exactly is it that God made on day two? What did God make on day two? So now that we can think of Genesis 1-1 in terms of this introductory encapsulation, it actually frees our minds to think a little bit more carefully about what the nature of the rakia might be. So here is the flow of thought that Faulkner is using here in this paper. He says, first of all, that God called the Rakia Shemayim. Okay, so God called the firmament heaven. But remember, the Bible does not necessarily make a sharp distinction between the levels of heaven. In some contexts, these are blurred. Now, the ancients, however, would likely have 
had some concept of distinction between the three levels of heaven. Since, like we talked about, it's obvious that the sun, moon, stars, etc. are much further away than the birds, clouds, etc. And all of those things would be understood as completely separate from the abode of God. Because remember, on the Hebrew worldview, and this is where that's pertinent, of transcendence, God is radically other than his creation. So it would be obvious to the observer that these things are different. Even if they don't have to be professional astronomers, probably better that they weren't uh, because the person who who does not have training in astronomy tends to think phenomenologically. Now, I've heard people criticize that, that we, that, we, that we don't want to read phenomenology into the Bible. However, I, I get what the, maybe to some extent what they're saying. At the same time, the casual observer who doesn't think clearly about these things usually only speaks in terms of phenomenology. So I think that's perfectly acceptable. But that's a little bit of a digression. Uh, so I again make the point that the ancient people were primitive. They had limited technological ability, but they weren't stupid. In fact, I've argued in the Biblical Origin of Humanity series where we went through Mortensen's book, Searching for Adam, we talked about one of those lessons, I will link you to it in the show notes here, that actually show that there were some technological advances that are kind of surprising. That, I don't want to say advances, but technological phenomena from ancient times that we really don't even understand today. So to think that these people were stupid would just be to misunderstand history, I guess. Now, here is Faulkner's point. Quote, If one were to opine that only the second heaven was made on day two, then it's not clear where the line of demarcation between the two would have been. However, if both entities were made on day two, then this is a moot point. Okay, so you see what he's saying here, that scientifically and even biblically, there is no clear idea as to where a distinction would have been between the atmosphere and outer space for the ancient Hebrews. To be honest, that is not even clear to us today, really. It's not just something that happens immediately. It happens over a, a, a distance. There's no one point where atmosphere ends and space begins. So to say that on day two, in verses six through eight, only this second heaven was being created doesn't really make sense in light of the fact that these distinctions are not so clearly laid out in Scripture. So, from this, he draws the following set of conclusions. The first three times we see this Shemayim, are in Genesis 1, 1, 8, and 9. 1, obviously, is the, i.e., the introductory encapsulation. 8 is God's equation of the Rakia with the Shemayim. And 9 is when God commands the dry land to appear under the heavens. From this, it isn't really clear that whatever the Rakia is in verse 8 is the same thing as the Shomayim 
in verse 9. Or I, I should say, excuse me, it is clear. I said it's not clear, but I should have said that it is clear. Whatever the rakia is in verse 8, it's the same thing as the Shemayim in verse 9. And to make this even clearer, lest there be any doubt, the remaining four uses of the Shemayim in Genesis 1 appear together with rakia. This is the statement that you see all throughout Genesis 1 in the latter half, the firmament of heaven. Talks about this in the day five and the day four account. The firmament of heaven. That's the three remaining uses. Now, let me give you his comments about this. Quote, within the context of the day four narrative, this firmament of heaven is where God placed the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars. In the day five narrative, the birds are, or excuse me, in the day five account, the birds are said to fly across or upon the expanse of the heavens. So the construction in Genesis 1.20 is different from the other appearances of the phrase firmament of heaven, and it's difficult to translate. There's a distinction from where the stars are, suggesting that the birds merely fly across the interface of the firmament of heaven. These considerations and others suggest that the rakia is closer or closest to what we would call the sky. In this respect, the atmosphere, and especially the lower portions of the atmosphere, may be near the surface of the rakia. Close quote. So he goes into a discussion that we're not going to cover here as kind of a side note, but he provides pretty sound evidence that the stretching of the heavens, remember I mentioned to you earlier to draw this back, that the rakia meant, you know, kind of like a spreading out or a meeting out. He provides evidence that the stretching of the heavens that is mentioned throughout scripture is actually likely referring to the day two past event rather than the ongoing expansion of space. Now, I know that's another thing that's very commonly, especially in uh, in young age and old earth even circles, they want to say that the Bible kind of predicted this expanding, you know, expansion of space, this ongoing expansion of space that we observe today, which, by the way, we do observe that today, okay? But it seems clear from the scriptural references that this is actually referring to a stretching out of the heavens. Now, this is important because from this little discussion, he concludes with Psalm 19.1, which is very interesting because of the Hebrew parallelism that's in play here. So here's, here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I love this verse. Let me read it again. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Here's his comment. Quote, here the word rakia is rendered sky. Now he's using the ESV. I'm just reading what he was reading. This verse says the same thing two different ways. However, the parallelism works only if the two subjects Shemayim and Rakia are equivalent on a conceptual level, i.e. they refer essentially to the same thing. 
These two entities are exactly equated in Genesis 1.8, so they are the same. Therefore, if the rakia made on day 2 is the Earth's atmosphere, then the subject of Psalm 19.1 is the Earth's atmosphere. No one believes this to be the case, for Psalm 19.1 is universally accepted as referring to the celestial heavens, While Psalm 19 does not specifically mention stars, it does mention the sun in verse 4, and the sun is further discussed in verses 5 and 6. Clearly, God made the sun on day 4 and placed it in the firmament or expanse of heaven. This is not the earth's atmosphere. Close quote. So we find this distinction made in two separate places, and the one distinction is in Psalms, uh, Psalm 19, which is pretty much ubiquitously regarded as the as the celestial heavens as space. So this is interesting. So the answer to what did God make on day two? It seems to me that God made the sky, the heavens, the entire universe. In the day to what? Well, not the entire universe, but other than Earth, um, in the day to account, he made the space, the atmosphere, all of it together. Now, here's another question that we need to answer in order to get to the bottom of this: What are the waters above today? Or excuse me, where are the waters above today? Because it talks about waters above the heavens. So based on our conclusions thus far, the rakia could be best identified with what we understand as space. And Faulkner notes three quite startling conclusions. First of all, assuming these waters that are above are a finite distance away, the universe has an edge. There's no reason this couldn't be the case but in a very unpopular, uh, it's a very unpopular view among cosmologists, uh, to say the least. Uh, again, it, it's, it's conceptually possible, and they regard it as possible, but it's extremely unpopular. Secondly, the waters above were spread out from the waters below, if you'll remember. And since that's the case, it's likely that the Earth is, or at least very near, the center of the universe. Now, this would not necessarily be a surprise, especially biblically. Uh, In fact, it's central to many creationist starlight solutions, including the CTC solution we discussed just in the past few weeks. So, again, if the waters below are understood to be the waters that you know, what some would call the the watery sphere, uh, sphere, that the earth was on day one, and the heavens were stretched out from there, and thus the waters above, separated by the waters below, or from the waters below, then it's pretty probable that we are at the center of the universe, or at least pretty close to it. And again, this is a denial of the cosmological principle, or the Copernican principle, and this solution or I should say that this uh, 
this assumption is rejected by many other creationist cosmologies. So this will be nothing new, but it's resisted by many due to the immense probability that the universe has no center. Because, here's why, it would be evidence of purposeful design. And by the way, there's no evidence at present to test this, and yet this is one of the fundamental assumptions of the Big Bang. I talk about that in the handout. Remember, don't forget to get that. Five reasons why creationists and everyone else should reject the Big Bang theory. I want you to get that so you have an understanding of what's going on here. And then thirdly, the boundary of the universe is accompanied by water. Let me say that again. The boundary of the universe is accompanied by water. Psalm 148.4 says, Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Note that the water is still present at the time of the psalmist's writing. So there were those who argued in the past that the waters above were some sort of a vapor canopy or even an ice canopy or whatever, and they contributed to the flood. It was this canopy that provided the rain from the windows of heaven that the Bible speaks of in the flood account. But here we have the psalm, the psalmist writing well after the flood account, saying that the waters are still above the heavens. Now, again, there are some who want to say that this means that the Hebrews taught ancient cosmology, or that, or, or that at least it, that made it into the Bible, because there is an ancient, you know, the ancient Greek cosmology that we talked about, and some believe that it extended into the Hebrew culture as well, and into other ancient Near Eastern cultures as well, where you have the waters. In other words, the tra- the heaven was transparent, the sky above was transparent, and the blue that you see rather than being a result of the light as we understand it today um, coming through our atmosphere, basically they saw that as the water above the heavens. And so we're not getting into all of that today, but I think based on if, if we just stay with the text and we look at what the, the biblical authors seem to say, it seems like that kind of distinction would not be allowed by the fact that there are different things associated with the heavens, all of which are different physical locations, even to the Hebrews, okay? So I don't think we're any in any danger there. But the point is just that cosmologies that argue that the Rakia is just our atmosphere don't seem to work in light of this fact. So here are the implications. You know, what was the form of it? Well, <sighs> We don't know. The Hebrew word for water in Psalm 148.4 does suggest liquid water. It's the Hebrew word ma'im, ma'im. But the distinction is not immediately necessary to consider the physical implications of any form of water at the boundary of the universe. Here's another implication. Radiation. And you kind of see where this is going now. Radiation. Let me read this to you. It's a direct quote from Faulkner. Quote, all baryonic matter, such as water, must radiate if it has any temperature. We've never observed, nor can we conceive of matter with absolutely no temperature. So the assumption that the water at the edge of the universe has temperature seems unwarranted. Or seems warranted, excuse me. Solids, liquids, and gases at high pressure radiate a black body spectrum that is a function of temperature. 
A question arises as to whether the water at the edge of the universe is optically thick. I will assume here that it is, thus ensuring a relatively clean black body curve. If the water at the edge of the universe is a gas at low pressure, it will produce an emission spectrum, which will be a function of its temperature. At any rate, the spectrum of a low-pressure gas will be dramatically different from the spectrum of the other possibilities. As a back-of-envelope calculation, assume that the temperature of the water is 300 Kelvin, close to room temperature. The water must lie beyond the most distant galaxies or other objects in the universe. Observationally, we know that there is a direct relationship between distance and redshift, the Hubble relation. Therefore, the spectrum of the water must be redshifted by a factor greater than the largest observed redshift. Currently, the record for greatest redshift is 8.6 for the galaxy UDFY-3813553939. And this record redshift will likely fall to an even higher redshift. So we'll assume that Z, which is redshift, equals 10 for the water. This would result in a black body spectrum of 30 Kelvin, close quote. Now today... We observe that the universe is bathed in a radiation field close to, get this, 2.725 Kelvin. This is known as the cosmic background radiation. Now, today, of course, this is considered uh, and interpreted as the best evidence for the Big Bang. And Dr. Faulkner goes briefly into the reasons why in the paper, but we're going to skip that discussion. I encourage you to go read it. Of course, I will link you to the paper in the show notes. Now, there's really been no satisfactory creationist explanation for this up to this point, but if there's water at the edge of the universe, it ought to radiate, and the observable black body radiation would fit that scenario. So, I mean, that's all the marbles, guys. I mean, a lot more work has to be done here because, you know, we don't have expected temperatures, etc. You know, Faulkner is hopeful. He says that in time, it may be possible to estimate both temperature and redshift based on a detailed model of the Rakia. So this is really interesting stuff. But based on the statements in the Bible and the equation of the Rakia with the Shemayim, it would seem highly plausible that when the Bible talks about the firmament or the rakia or the expanse, that it's talking about our atmosphere and outer space, the whole deal. Meaning that the outside of our universe at the boundary is surrounded by water, which would cause this radiation field. Thus, assuming that the numbers work out correctly, we have the cosmic background radiation. I'm going to read you his conclusion here, and we're going to wrap up for today. Quote, how one interprets Genesis 1-1 directly affects how one interprets Genesis 1-6-8. If one gets Genesis 1-6-8 wrong, it will have little, if any, impact on a biblical model of geology. If one gets it wrong, it will have little, if any, impact on a biblical model of biology. However, if one gets Genesis one 6 through 8 wrong, then there's little hope of developing a successful biblical model of astronomy. I ask that those who may be quick to criticize the proposal presented here carefully consider 
or carefully to consider the consequences to astronomy. An exciting possibility is that this proposal may provide a potential explanation for the CMB. Recently, Humphreys 2014 has produced a model that may offer an explanation for the CMB. At this point, we ought not to rule out any possibilities, close quote. And again here, you know, I, I really just love Faulkner's optimism, but also his skepticism. He's very careful when he addresses these things. He doesn't want to say more than he believes the you know, the, the text actually says, and he wants to be very careful not to read modern science into his interpretation of the Bible. Is he perfect in doing that? Well, I'm, I'm sure he's not. Most people aren't, but I've witnessed his development, and as he develops, he, he tries more and more to be so careful about this. And that's one of the things that I love about following him, and one of the reasons why I am confident that he is a a, a researcher in the astronomy enterprise to value and his work is to be to be valued all right hey let's say a word of prayer dear heavenly father we love you thank you for creating the heavens and the earth thank you lord for creating us lord that we may be able to observe your creation lord to take dominion over the earth as you suggested that we do or commanded us to do and uh, thank you for just giving us the ability to to love you as we discussed in our recent series on that topic and the fact that we can explore your word and your world and find how the two relate to each other and find how the two tell us more about each other Lord, that's just amazing. But of course, we want to say thank you for your word, for your special revelation to us. Father, not only for the written word, but also for the word who was made manifest and became flesh for us and died on a cross. Having known no sin, he took on sin for us that we might be made righteous, that we might be made sons of God. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful, wonderful sacrifice, Lord, that your son provided for us on the cross. Father, we love you. We want to say thank you again for being so good to us. I pray now you'd go with us. You'd help us in this year, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, listen, I hope you'll take what you learned here today. You know, try to figure out if, you know, maybe there's some ways it could be improved upon. Maybe there's something Faulkner missed. Hey, why don't you consider joining us in the Facebook group? I forget the URL, the, the, the link right now, but I'll put the link in the show notes so you can be sure to go over there. If you have any reservations about it or if you're excited about it, tell me. You know, again, I want to stress I'm not presenting anything anything that Faulkner said in the paper here as the gospel truth. I'm just simply giving you what he gave us and trying to make this um, more accessible and more available to a wider audience. And so I want to hear your thoughts on it. We'll talk about it a little bit. Tell me if I'm if I'm way off, if I need to consider some other possibilities, whatever that may be. All right. So join us over there in the Facebook group. Don't forget to get the handout. Five reasons, or it's three reasons. I think it might be three reasons. I can't remember that uh, that uh, creationists and everyone else should reject the Big Bang. All right. So I look forward to seeing you next time, and thank you again for joining us. Hope you have a great week. Bye bye.